Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, why is it so hard to take action on mass shootings in the US? In what was the deadliest US school attack in a decade, 19 children and two teachers were shot dead by an 18-year-old in the Texas town of Uvalde last month. It has yet again sparked off a debate about the ease of access to guns in the US particularly the types of semi-automatic weapons commonly used in these kinds of attacks. Since the start of this year, there have been more than 240 mass shootings in the US. There were 13 such incidents over last weekend alone. Those calling for reforms have encouraged lawmakers to question why this level of violence is not seen in other countries and ask them to acknowledge the role that easy access to guns has in facilitating these attacks. On the other side of the argument, the gun lobby and those who are protective of their right to bear arms, have said these kinds of tragedies could be better mitigated if more people carried guns. So how likely is it that serious reforms will now follow? And why is it so hard to limit access to guns in the US? To talk us through it all, I'm joined by Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway and columnist with The Journal. Larry, thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Michelle. Now, Larry, here in Ireland, we're only ever really focused on the gun control debate when there's a particularly devastating event like the shooting in Uvalde. Do you think that we underestimate here just how pervasive gun culture is in the US? Uh, I, I think at times it's probably overlooked, uh, I think in a sense, because it is so foreign to the culture uh, of just about everywhere. Um, and again, you know, Michelle, one of the key things here is that the United States obviously is a vast place. Uh, there are 50 states, all of which uh, arguably have their own uh, unique cultures. So in some states, yes, there is a particularly pronounced gun culture um, that most of us have a hard time getting our heads around. Uh, we've seen footage of people waiting in line for a coffee um, with you know, a, a piece of machinery around their back, which is quite horrifying. But in those states, uh, it's actually commonplace. Um, and it goes, it's very, very deep rooted uh, in the American psyche, this idea of the frontiers person who uh, the founding fathers and everything else in this country was founded on God, guns and guts. Um, that is something deeply rooted um, in the American psyche and the gun culture uh, is never going to go away. What I think those of us who are advocating for more gun control laws would say is that, yes, there's a right to bear arms, but does that right extend all the way to these types of guns that are meant, they're intended to kill lots of people very quickly? To me, the answer is no. And what type of debate then have we seen since the Uvalde shooting? I think in, in some sense, we've seen uh, a rehash of what we saw uh, after Sandy Hook, after Las Vegas, after you name it, um, the number of mass shootings we've had. We've seen um, a, some politicians who've long been advocates for gun control, uh, people like Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, uh, indeed, uh, the president himself, who's long been uh, a crusader for gun control laws. Um, and they're exasperated, uh, quite frankly. They just cannot believe that this happens over and over again, and we don't seem to have any political movement whatsoever. Uh, on the other side, um, there has been some response uh, from some on the, uh, you know, the pro-gun uh, side of things or the anti-gun control side of things, uh, you know, reiterating, reiterating their, their typical talking points uh, and blaming this on the lack of uh, mental health uh, prov provision services for those with mental health issues. Uh, and blaming just about everything but the gun. Uh, and then I think in other quarters, in what I would call shrewder Republican quarters, uh, we've heard very little. 
Uh, they've gone to ground. For instance, Mitch McConnell uh, has said very little. And now we know uh, that behind the scenes, there is a group in the United States Senate of Republicans and Democrats who are trying to figure out what, if anything, can be done uh, in the wake of Uvalde. You spoke there about the Sandy Hook school shooting. This is unfortunately not the first time we've seen a mass shooting of this kind and scale involving young children. It seems like from what you're saying, we haven't seen significant change. Has the situation evolved at all since the other mass tragedies we've seen in the past? Since Sandy Hook, uh, regrettably, the answer is at least at the federal level, uh, nothing of substance has been done. Uh, And that's what makes uh, so many of us downright angry when it comes to this issue. Um, you know, just even speaking personally, uh, I have at this stage what I, you might call uh, a single transferable column uh, that I write every time these things happen. Uh, and the reality is nothing substantial has happened um, at the federal level since then. There were moves in decades previously, in particular uh, under the presidency of Bill Clinton. But in more recent years, things have stalled. There have indeed um, been moves at very, in various states, which, of course, is very, very important. But at the federal level, very little has happened. And there has understandably been a focus on the police response, the decision to delay going into the classroom on that day. Has this distracted from the issue of gun control? I I think it has. I think it's averted some uh, attention. I think for those uh, on the anti-gun control side, it has given them something uh, to focus in on. And and look, Michelle, I mean, like anybody, uh, I'm quite disturbed uh, by the reaction uh, of police and others. Uh, when this happened, the fact that this gunman was in there for an hour, um, we need to get some answers as to why that happened. Um, And something clearly went drastically wrong for this to happen. But that shouldn't distract uh, from the reason why we are where we are. And we are where we are because an 18-year-old who had demonstrated uh, lots of worrying behavior in the past, an 18-year-old without anything more than a driver's license was able to buy one of these guns, guns, again, intended to kill lots of people really quickly. That's why we're here, uh, and we shouldn't be distracted from that. Do we have any sense of the public sentiment shifting since that shooting? In the immediate wake of the shooting, I'm not so sure we've seen a measurable shift, but here's the real uh, source of frustration, indeed, as I said, exasperation uh, for lots of us, is that the vast majority of Americans favor background checks before you can buy a gun. The vast majority of Americans favor uh, waiting periods before, between the time you purchase the gun and the time you actually get it. The vast majority of Americans favor uh, an assault weapon ban. Uh, And this is true, uh, you know, even after a shooting, obviously these things come to the fore, but even, you know, when when there hasn't been a shooting and Americans are pulled, um, again, most Americans want these things, but there's just no action Uh, in Capitol Hill, uh, and that's mainly because uh, of the outside influence uh, of the NRA and of the gun gun lobby more widely, um, to the extent that um, things just don't get done because there are so many uh, legislators who, let's be frank, are bought and paid for by the gun lobby. And if they dare to deviate from dogma, they could well find themselves staring down the barrel uh, of a primary challenge from somebody who will do the bidding unthinkingly uh, of the gun lobby. And you spoke there already about the NRA. Who are the main elements on either side uh, shaping public opinion and pushing the legislators here? Well, they, on, on the anti-gun control side, there's no, no doubt, but the National Rifle Association is the, the leader. I mean, it, you know, in terms of its membership, 
uh, in terms of the power of its lobby. Uh, they are the leaders on this. And a really important point needs to be made on this front, Michelle, and the point is this. The NRA was once a, a pretty moderate mainstream organization. It was primarily concerned with the rights of hunters and sports people. Uh, it morphed into something far more radical uh, in recent decades to the point that now it opposes any restriction whatsoever uh, on guns. Uh, the NRA is bolstered then by a number of groups, uh, some of which are even more radical in terms of their agenda, typically with names affixed to them like the Gun Owners Action League or Gun Rights, um, various organizations that particularly at state level uh, wield considerable power. Uh, on the other side, uh, I suppose you have various coalitions. You know, after the, the, one of the shootings in Florida, we saw a coalition uh, of parents and young people spring up uh, demanding uh, stricter gun control uh, laws in the wake of a tragedy there. So we have various ad hoc coalitions. Uh, we, we have a Democratic Party that, uh, by and large, uh, uses its you know influence and use you know on its its political platform uh, sponsors and supports uh, strong gun control measures. Um, there are a lot of people who you know, use their money and use their resources to fund um, efforts uh, to to have stricter gun control laws. So on both sides you have uh, powerful lobbies, but um, the reality is that for a variety of reasons, um, one of which needs to be said is the composition of the United States Senate. In that, arguably, uh, states where gun control is deeply popular, states where gun ownership is very prevalent, um, it, it, they tend to be less populous, yet still they have the same representation in the United States Senate as more populous states where gun control uh, is far more popular. So with that kind of institutional advantage and some of the other points I mentioned, um, to date at least, uh, I think you'd have to say that the NRA and the anti-gun control lobby uh, have certainly won the war. Do these kinds of tragedies splinter the lobby group in any way, or do they strengthen the kinds of ideas they already have, such as that argument that more guns would stop these things from happening? Uh, the, the latter argument, you know, we, we heard, you know, Ted Cruz in the wake, uh, right immediate aftermath of the shooting. Um, and I have to be frank, uh, what I thought were despicable comments really at when these parents and these families are grieving, um, effectively saying that the answer to this uh, is to arm teachers and to have heavily armed security guards walking around schools. Um, and I you know it really find it hard to fathom, but that this is the price um, that these politicians are willing for little children, not themselves, but for little children to pay so that others can purchase um, you know, weapons of war uh, with as little inconvenience as possible. Um, that saddens me. Uh, very, very deeply. Uh, in terms of, you know, whether this causes any splintering within the anti-gun control movement, um, to an extent it does. Like, I, you know, I think we saw, you know, in recent years, we saw, uh, you know, well-known at this stage, uh, conservative Democrat Joe Manchin uh, get together with the conservative Republican Pat Toomey, um, and they crafted a, a compromise bill with a package uh, of reasonable, um, you know, gun control measures that couldn't get through. Now, Manchin and Toomey are part of this group that I alluded to before that are huddled around and they're trying to come up with things like perhaps uh, increasing the age to buy uh, semi-automatic weapons to 21. Uh, it's strengthening background checks, strengthening waiting periods, looking at potentially uh, red flag laws so that people with criminal records uh, or mental health issues can't buy guns. They're looking at these this package of measures um, whether um, the needle has shifted enough because of what we saw in Uvalde happen, uh, I don't know. 
Um, but by and large, the gun lobby retains strong, I mean, there, are, there retains a strong influence and hasn't really moved too far. These kinds of incidents, Sandy Hook was another example of young children being killed in their classrooms, even those are not tipping points. Why is it so hard to form a consensus on this issue or even for there to be slight movement? Yeah, I mean, I alluded to the central political problem uh, a minute ago, and that is, that, you know, because um, because of the composition of the U.S. Senate, uh, that is a real big impediment to forming a majority. The other political component there is um, that the, the labyrinthine procedural rules of the United States Senate mean that you need 60 votes. You need to get a supermajority uh, to get most uh, pieces of substantive legislation passed. Um, and given how divided uh, the Congress is, that's a very, very difficult ask. Um, you know, again, the problem here, Michelle, is, that it is one of a democratic deficit, because uh, if you look at what the people want, the people want these measures. The majority of Republicans uh, want these measures. But, um, you know, time and time again, um, the NRA wields its influence. And what happens is that these incidents have become so commonplace that we, we mourn when they happen. Um, you know, we, we, we grieve with, you know, we hear conservative politicians talk about thoughts and prayers. We hear them talk about mental health issues. Um, some of us wonder, will this be the camel that, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back um, and nothing happens and time fades, memories lapse um, until the next shooting. Uh, and that's uh, a regrettable fact uh, of American life, of American political life more broadly. And it also goes back to something I said at the outset, which is that there is uh, an undeniable gun culture felt more strongly in some parts of the U.S. than in others. But there, there is an undeniable gun culture in the United States. Um, that, frankly, people in most other parts of the world cannot understand, nor will they ever understand it. Um, and again, the U.S. is a vast place. Uh, I don't understand it fully myself. When we have these discussions, we obviously associate Republicans with gun law strongholds. But there must be conservative parents, for example, who see a school shooting and think, hold on, there's a problem here. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's what you know <laughs> a lot of politicians have banked on. I think in particular... Uh, in his comments uh, last week, uh, I think Joe Biden was speaking directly to that cohort uh, of Americans, and in particular uh, to uh, you know what's alternately referred to in American political parlance as uh, soccer moms or suburban moms, or wh however you want to define it. Um, that they who uh, vacillate between Republican and Democrat, um, perhaps for a lot of them, uh, it's it's in their economic best interest to vote Republican, but that. Um, some of them may be swayed uh, by what's happened, uh, and in particular by the fact that it is very young children here uh, who are being killed, uh, and that they might look at their own children who come home from school, and not it's not uncommon for them to come home from school and tell them about drills that they have done during school hours in which they prepare for uh, a, a mass shooter to come onto campus uh, and to do something like this. Um, what a uh, time and time again, uh, I think Democrats have really pointed to, you know, uh, articulated their message toward this group of parents in the hopes um, that it will change things. Will Uvalde make some of them peel off? Um, you know, again, uh, my hope is that it will. But I think um, Joe Biden has said before, and I think he said it again the other night, it's really important that uh, these this cohort of voters remember how angry they are right now. Remember how saddened they are. Remember how shocked they are and not forget that when it comes time to vote in November and in the midterm elections. And what action then has Biden taken on gun control so far during his time in the White House? 
he's been able to do very little. I mean, there are certain things that a U.S. president can do by executive order. Uh, they're quite limited in nature, and they're also uh, very, very amenable to court challenge. One of the things the NRA and the gun lobby is, is not, not afraid at all uh, of is running into court. Um, and again, there's a, there's a big case uh, in being uh, heard by the Supreme Court right now uh, affecting gun laws uh, in New York. Uh, so Biden hasn't done a lot. And this goes back, Michelle, really to the Clinton presidency, where Bill Clinton expended an awful lot of political capital to get the Brady Bill, uh, the bill named after Ronald Reagan's press secretary who was shot and paralyzed uh, when uh, there was an attempted assassination on Ronald Reagan, named for him. Uh, which in, which uh, did allow for background checks and a whole range of measures at the federal level. Now there are ways of getting around the Brady Bill, sadly, but the Brady Bill uh, arguably has present, prevented guns from getting into uh, the hands of people who shouldn't have them. The other thing that the president did, and this has been referred to often recently, uh, is President Clinton uh, was responsible for the assault weapons ban. Uh, and that assault weapons ban at the federal level uh, lasted for 10 years. I mean, it shows you how tight uh, and how tough it is to get things done uh, in order to get that through. The only way it could get through to Congress was if this is only lasting for 10 years and we'll look at it again. Uh, 10 years past, it was the presidency of George W. Bush. The ban was allowed to lapse uh, and we haven't seen it come back to life again. Uh, and again, Barack Obama, uh, in many ways, uh, you know, a transformative president, yet um, he too was unable to get anything done uh, on guns, even in the wake uh, of Sandy Hook. Um, so again, it just shows how intractable this, uh, this issue really is. So where can Joe Biden actually go from here? What power does he have? Well, he has the bully pulpit of the, of the presidency, which is not uh, insignificant. Uh, but if you look at the constitutional design of the United States, uh, the reality is the, the powers of the president uh, to do things uh, are quite limited. I mentioned before executive orders. Uh, but given the very, very narrow majorities that the Democratic Party has right now, uh, it's unlikely that he's going to get, uh, you know, a, a transformative legislation through. I mean, he'd love to have an assault weapons ban. He pleaded for an assault weapons ban. Um, that, in my view, at least at the federal level, uh, is not going to happen. Now, the other thing here is, you know, as you know, lots of people will be aware, midterm elections are coming up. Joe Biden's numbers, speaking frankly, uh, are in the toilet. Uh, it looks to be a very looks like it's going to be a bad election for Democrats. Every time you make those very strong pleas uh, for gun control, we have to worry about this incumbent in a, in a tough congressional district or this senator uh, who's in a tough battle for re-election. Uh, because again, the gun issue is there. So uh, the likelihood of anything big getting done um, is is you know very small. But uh, I remain somewhat optimistic that there might be some modest measures. Uh, accomplished uh, through um, this small group of United States senators who are working on it. And are you mentioned some of the previous presidencies. Are there any key measures that were introduced, say, during the Bush, Obama, or the last administration, the Trump administration, that stand out? To be frank, not really. Uh, you know, again, I mentioned what, what President Clinton did. I think that the assault weapons ban was, uh, was remarkable. Uh, I think that that, you know, if we only we could reinstate that, um, but if you look at uh, President George W. Bush, um, all, he's a conservative Republican, but he actually indicated that if the assault weapons ban got through the Congress, if they could have extended extension to the assault weapons ban got through the Congress, uh, that he would have signed it. Um, but uh, really, um, under the president, uh, presidency of George W. Bush, 
Uh, very little was done. If anything, uh, some federal gun control measures were loosened. Um, Bar Barack Obama, uh, again, the perception, let's do, uh, cast our mind's eye back to 2008. The perception was that Barack Hussein Obama was a radical leftist uh, who was going to change the character of the United States, that his mere presidency would change the character of the United States, um, and that because of the color of his skin, it was going to be an uphill battle uh, for him to win all the way. And as a consequence, what you will see, if you look back at videos of Barack Obama, anytime the gun issue is brought up, the first thing he says in every instance is, first thing I want to say is that I'm not here to take away your guns. I am not interested um, in impeding on the rights uh, of lawful gun owners. And when you start from that position, again, out of political necessity, that's probably think something he had to say. But when you start from that position, uh, it's very difficult then uh, to pull back and push for gun control measures uh, credibly. Uh, and I think that his political advisors probably rightly uh, told him to adopt that posture uh, when he was seeking the presidency. Uh, and again, because he put so much capital uh, into healthcare, uh, when it came time to try to solve the gun issue, then uh, he was all out. Uh, and we all know we've averted in the past uh, to his weaknesses in getting things done uh, on Capitol Hill. And I think no more was that more prominent uh, than on the gun issue. Um, Trump, um, again, Trump is all over the place uh, on this issue, as he is on so many other things. If we look at Donald Trump back in the day, Donald Trump at one stage uh, would have been a pretty strong advocate uh, of gun control legislation. Uh, and indeed, during his presidency, he sometimes signaled a willingness, in particular with respect to background checks, uh, that these were things that he would support. But in, in, time, in reality, uh, he never supported those things. Um, he always kowtowed to the NRA. Uh, and even in most recent days, and I, again, I find this uh, really disturbing, uh, he spoke to the NRA conference in the days after what happened in Uvalde, and he said that the measures now, be, you know, the attempts uh, to curtail uh, the ownership of semi-automatic weapons and other reasonable restrictions, he called them grotesque. Uh, so we really, unfortunately, if anything, at the federal level, we've seen a loosening uh, of gun control laws uh, and nothing really significant in recent presidencies since the Clinton presidency. And what about the soft power here? We saw Matthew McConaughey, he gave a very emotional address at the White House is there a shift that comes and an influence that comes outside of those traditional corridors of power? I'd like to think so. Uh, I'd like to think so. I mean, the, the idealist in me uh, thinks so, thinks that, you know, again, somebody like Matthew McConaughey, somebody whose politics, I should say, uh, are not that easy to pin down. He's not your traditional uh, Hollywood lefty. I think he even considered running for governor of uh, to his native Texas, um, as an independent, somebody who neither told the Republican nor the Democratic uh, party line. Uh, so I'd like to think uh, his intervention is a meaningful one, but I do go back to brass tacks when it comes to uh, politics. Uh, and the reality is the very people who are likely to be moved uh, by Matthew McConaughey's appeal are, in, uh, at the end of the day, the ones who are the least likely uh, to turn out, especially uh, in the context of a midterm election. Um, the reality is presidential elections in the United States, 60% um, of the electorate turns out, the electorate collectively, their skin is darker, uh, they, they're younger, um, all those sorts of things. Um, yet, yet in midterm elections, um, they, they, again, they tend to be whiter, they tend to be older, they tend to be more conservative. Um, you know, and in that context, uh, I don't hold out a huge amount of hope that at least in the short term, 
interventions like Matthew McConaughey, worthy as they may be, uh, I don't hold out much hope that they'll change the political scene. And some are saying Uvalde is different because it happened in Texas, which is traditionally a so-called gun-loving state. Some states have made moves either to tighten up or loosen their laws. Can you give us some examples on either side of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose uh, I, I'm loath to loath to get into you know very the nitty gritty of every state. But what I always come back to is um, you know my home state of Massachusetts, which has uh, the, the strongest gun control laws in the United States. And in Massachusetts, everything really revolves around uh, being able to obtain at the age of 18 a firearms identification card. And in order to get a firearms identification card. Uh, you need to be vetted very heavily uh, by uh, police, your, your local police uh, department, uh, many of whom will know you, will know people around you, um, and they will make a decision uh, as to whether you can obtain uh, a firearms identification card. And everything flows then from there. Uh, everything involves uh, a waiting period. Everything involves a background check, uh, registration, the, the notified of who owns guns uh, in various communities. There's a whole range uh, of very, very strict measures on gun ownership. Um, and the reality is mass shootings, you know, and touch wood on this one, mass shootings are almost non-existent uh, in the state of Massachusetts. On the flip side, if you want to look at a place like Texas and we look at the individual uh, who did what he did in Uvalde, and as I said before, he was able to purchase this weapon, a weapon of war with nothing more uh, than a driver's license just after his 18th birthday. No need of a firearms identification card, uh, no need of a background check, no waiting period, no nothing, simply what they would call constitutional carry. That is a uh, long gun. And uh, we heard the governor of Texas say it afterwards, 18 year olds have owned long guns in the state of Texas um, forever and a day, and almost as a point of pride. Um, and it's really, really disturbing to see that. But that demonstrates, I suppose, uh, on the one side, uh, a state with very, very lax measures. And those measures translate into things like uh, ability to carry weapons, uh, you know, without any, without, again, without being trained or anything like that, uh, you know, and a whole range of very, very permissive measures, um, you know, versus a state like Massachusetts, uh, where it is very, very restrictive. Now, it, it is worth saying right now, again, um, coming back to the United States Supreme Court, there is a challenge to a, a New York uh, gun law with, with respect to the right to carry. Uh, there's a challenge to that that's been heard by the Supreme Court. We await the decision, but it is expected that the US Supreme Court will overturn um, that, that, that law in New York. That could have real big consequences for states like Massachusetts, which have uh, relatively strict gun laws. And the argument being made um, by, the other, by, the, by the anti-gun control side is that what they have done, these laws, like laws in New York, laws in Massachusetts, is they have turned uh, what is a constitutional right uh, into a privilege, uh, and that that is impermissible. And given the composition of the court, my expectation, the expectation uh, of most uh, legal observers, is that the court will overturn uh, the, the New York law, uh, and that could have dramatic consequences across the United States. Is there anything on the table that the moderate members of the Republican Party could sign up to that wouldn't do them much damage in an election? What would the Republicans be willing to concede on? I think, well, I, I, I averted to already the, the, um, the, the group of 10 senators who are huddling around and trying to hammer something out that they think can get through uh, the Senate. That's going to be very tough because, again, you need 60 votes. 
in my view, Michelle, despite um, the perceptions of members of Congress, despite uh, the you know undeniable power uh, of the National Rifle Association and the gun lobby, I think that a back background checks um, and perhaps a waiting period and, and perhaps red flag laws. Um, I think incremental measures like that um, could uh, be supported by Republicans without um, dire political consequences, I think, especially uh, in the current context. That having been said, uh, in the United States, politics at the end of the day is really a dollars and cents game, uh, and they will all be watching very carefully, uh, and they will vote uh, based on their own self-interest. No matter what they might tell you about high and mighty ideals, they will vote based on their self-interest, and that self-interest will boil down to uh, a calculation, which is, will my support for a background check, will my support for a red flag law, will my support for um, waiting period, will that earn me a challenge uh, from a National Rifle Association funded uh, candidate? Uh, if they calculate that it does, uh, my, in my, my guess is they would back off those things. Uh, but uh, my own political calculus is that there's an appetite for that stuff now, uh, and that uh, voters, I, I think, uh, you know, would look past it. But again, um, they'll make they'll make very guarded, calculate, calculated uh, moves based on their own political self-interest. And finally, Larry, the Uvalde shooting happened with Joe Biden in the White House. We know how he feels about gun control. So what would the next White House and maybe more importantly, what would the next Congress have to look like for any meaningful gun control change to happen? Uh, what, what it would need to happen was we would need a uh, a Democratic president, whether that's Joe Biden in the event that he seeks another term or uh, someone else on the Democratic side. Uh, and we would need pretty solid Democratic majorities, uh, both in the House and the Senate, uh, in order to get anything meaningful done uh, on the issue. That is a very, very unlikely possibility, at least in the short term. Uh, Republicans look pretty likely to take back uh, both the House and the Senate uh, in the midterm elections. So we're probably talking about a hypothetical that doesn't really exist. What's more, uh, and this is to end, I, I suppose, for those who want stricter gun control laws to end on, on, a, on a somber note, and this is the point I would make, even if there were very solid uh, majorities in both the House and the Senate uh, and a Democratic president, um, if you look at what I mentioned before, what Bill Clinton did um, with a Democratic Senate and Democratic House uh, on the assault weapons ban, uh, Bill, and they had solid majorities in both. Bill Clinton wrote subsequently, and I do trust his political judgment, um, Bill Clinton wrote subsequently that um, the, the, the contract with America and, and Speaker Newt Gingrich probably boiled down to one thing, uh, and that was the Democratic Party's move uh, to ban assault weapons, such is the strength uh, of the gun lobby uh, in American politics. I wish my answer was different, but I'm afraid uh, that's how tough it's going to be, even if we did have those types of solid majorities, it's still going to be tough to get anything done uh, at the federal level. Well, Larry, I feel like this is something we're going to be talking about again and, and probably something you'll be writing several other opinion pieces on, on the journal about. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Larry for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry, Laura Byrne and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you could do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. Or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.